Hello, everyone. Happy New Year, and welcome back to the Even the Score podcast, a podcast about soundtracks and scores from movies, TV shows, and video games. I am, as always, Don, and I'm, as usual, joined by my co-hosts, Anthony and Jason. Hello to you both. Hey, Don. Hey, Anthony. How'd they have neighborinos? Well, we are back. It is officially 2022. We've taken a nice little bit of a break here. We uh, decided to recharge the batteries, get back into topics here starting closer to the end of January. But here we are. We're going to kick off 2022 with a bang. We're going to jump right back into our uh, season of genre study. We're going to take a look at documentaries today. We've got a lot of interesting topics to talk about. Uh, we're going to get into that in our main topic, of course. But uh, first, we're going to go into to what you're listening to and I think that's going to kind of encapsulate what we've been listening to over our holiday break so it's kind of like we're returning to school and it's show and tell time and <laughs> tell the teacher what do you guys have been listening to over your holiday break so whoever wants to jump in go right ahead I was trying to channel my like 10 year old voice and it's not happening I'll, I'll jump in so I have not been buying records and albums with the same gusto I don't know maybe it's pandemic wearing on me or just whatever but one of my uh, family members got me a, a gift card for, uh, you know, over Christmas or whatever. And, like, I, I made a rare trek. Like, I almost never buy vinyl from Best Buy. Not to say, I mean, you know, it's not like they sell very much of it. But there are so many other places I'd rather go. But I was like, well, I don't know what else I want from this place. And I ended up, like, sort of gravitating towards the little sparse, uh, sparse section of vinyl that they actually had. And I think I may have... Sp- Spoken about the fact that I did want to get a uh, common second album because oh, yeah, that yeah. happened recently and they had it there. And I was like, okay, yoink. All right, <laughs> check yeah. that that took care of that. But then I also saw this, uh, I guess, greatest hits album, David Bowie, uh, and I think the album's called Legacy. Okay, mm-hmm. yeah. and I was like, you know, I appreciate him as an artist you know rest in peace and everything but i never really dug into most of his catalog like i only knew sort of the superficial stuff that i think i feel like everybody knows right so i was like let me let me grab this and you know i don't know this will necessarily make me like a huge fan or anything but at least it'll give me a deeper appreciation of where he was coming from and i was i was feeling that you know i have to say i don't know if this is the actual title i I mean i could go over and look it's not like the album's that far away from me but the mr tom song oh yeah or major tom major Major tom Tom. not major tom control the major tom i was feeling that like i don't know what it was about that track but i was just like okay this is dreamy 70s glam rock yes please exactly exactly i was just like i I can i can kind of dig this um i don't know there was something about like the better not mess with a major tom chant towards the end of that track that i was just like yeah it's good time i'm I'm here for this (laughs) i'm here for this But that aside, though, I had found myself like pulling up some other records that like I just I listened to some time ago and I just really wanted to hear them again. So that's kind of where I'm at, you know, in terms of uh, listening. I, I wish I had some great movie soundtrack or anything to talk about at the moment, but unfortunately I don't. Although one is definitely on my radar and we'll talk more about that when we get into our subject today. But uh, that is that's me. 
I know we have talked about getting into a bit of a deep dive and maybe even like doing a Q&A about vinyl, but I want to get your guys's take. Jason, it's interesting that you didn't really know much about Bowie, but but you bought the album. Like where where does that kind of sit with you? Like do you just kind of go out of the comfort zone of what you're looking for to just pick up something random, especially with vinyl being a little bit more yeah. expensive say than than a CD or some MP3s or listening to it on Spotify? I think with vinyl, I'm willing to take calculated risk um, is maybe the best way to put it, because I, you know, I'm, I would be lying if I sat there and said, oh, yeah, I grab whatever I see, like if, you know, the album looks cool or something like that. Like I've gone into the record shop many times and I've seen like, you know, all these indie artists or like other stuff. And it's like, I maybe I should know more about this, but I don't and I'm not going to pretend. So that's kind of where that usually sits, but I'm all about tangents, right? So like, for example, Can is the perfect example of that. Like I hadn't actually ever heard of Can until, so this is, this maybe this kind of an interesting story, maybe not. There's this artist from Los Angeles uh, called Jay Davey. It's like this girl and this guy, they do sort of like this alternative sort of trippy R&B and she there was this one song where like there was like this not an interlude but kind of like this weird bridge mm-hmm. and she was saying like peace hope a little bit of dope something else like something less smoke but like the the music i didn't realize it until like i randomly i don't know if it was a documentary or something on like something recommended on youtube like i happened to hear the song from can that it came from and i was like <gasps> Yeah. Oh my gosh. Like, I know this. I gotta, like, I gotta search this out. So, like, you know, that led to uh, getting, I think, their uh, Tango Mango or something like that album. That, like, it's the only one that I happen to have. And it hasn't necessarily led to, like, this great big exploration of that group. But, like, I'm sometimes stuff will make me curious enough to sort of explore it a little bit. Uh, another great example is like my mind was kind of blown or whatever when I realized that this like uh, Slum Village sample was like Herbie Hancock and I was like no way that's so cool like the sort of like slight delve into disco thing that like jazz-ish thing that he did at this particular album like Dill like picked up on that and like made this other I was like fascinated and you know I mean obviously where I went with that Hertz whole Herbie Hancock thing is basically history now but mm-hmm. um yeah a lot of times for me it's pretty rare that i'll just pick up something that i have absolutely no exposure to like but i will it doesn't have to be a huge exposure like it could be pretty random and tangential to like something else i like and it'll be like oh let me find out more about this and either i like sort of a one-off and it's like well okay that was cool or it's like oh my god this is the best thing ever and then i like i go as deep down that rabbit hole as I possibly can. Neat. Yeah, I like the way you use calculated risk when it comes to purchasing unknown vinyl because that's the perfect way to sum it up is like you really are like running a crapshoot there that you could get something like amazing and it's like, wow, I can't believe I never heard this before. You get an album, you're like, so I like two songs on this. (laughs) Well, I think that happened, Jason, when you were talking about uh exorcist 2 soundtrack mm-hmm. or there was there was a horror soundtrack that that you'd picked up on vinyl and you you were saying you were pretty underwhelmed well i think i sort of did that for the assignment that mm-hmm. wasn't even so much like anything i was exposed to because you guys know i'm not like as a, a genre horror is not something i really dig but i was like 
you know, I wanted to have something we to talk about for that particular episode. And I was like, well, okay, this uh, place is putting up this album and I'm, it fits right in with the subject matter. Let me go grab it and see how I like it. And unfortunately, I didn't like it so much. But, I mean, it, it was a one-off. I mean, hell, I love the movie Heat. I picked up that soundtrack. I was underwhelmed. So it's like... Yeah, but no. Jim- it, yeah. Oh, go ahead, Anthony. I didn't mean to cut you off. No, no, no. I was just going to nod in agreement. And yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, sometimes it's a you know a home run, and other times it's sort of a, a swing and a miss. But womp, womp. yeah, it's the way it rolls. Yeah, but that whole calculated risk thing also sort of goes with well, am I buying this brand new or not? Because mm. that's something that you could do with vinyl that you can't easily do with a lot of other things. And if you know if it's used and it's like a couple of bucks, and it like the album itself looks like it's in decent condition there's like no risk. You know what I mean? It's like, totally. if it sucks, it's like, okay, I'm out a couple bucks. Like I'd spend more on that on gum. So it's like, so my exactly. I think at the beginning I was overwhelmed with the, we're going into a huge vinyl tangent right now, <laughs> but I'm totally happy with it because I actually just picked up something that wasn't a calculated risk because I've never listened to it before, but I know it. Uh, and I was at my local uh, record shop, dead dog records in Toronto, Ontario. Nice plug. Right? Mm-hmm. So I was there and they had a vinyl copy of the Beauty and the Beast television soundtrack. <laughs> Back in the 90s, Linda Hamilton and Ron Perlman yep. starred in Beauty yep. and the Beast. And there was like this whole television show that was like semi-romantic and it was kind of like, okay, they're going to do that. But yeah, I bought the soundtrack. I think it was like six ninety nine, five ninety nine. I was like, well, I don't know what this is going to be like, but I'm pretty sure I'm going to be able to put this on and entertain myself for six dollars. So amazing. Yeah, I was pretty happy with that. Mm-hmm. Nice. Anthony, what have you well, been listening to? Well, I was just going to gonna say, maybe I'll continue because yeah, I haven't actually listened to the Beauty and the Beast soundtrack, but I will. The, it'll be, there'll be a time and a place for it. But right now, I'm really into, have either of you heard or watched Yellow Jackets yet? No, no not yet. I've heard tons about it. Yeah. Okay. So I'm finished the first season. It's by far one of the best shows I've seen in a very long time. Concept is uh, one timeline takes place in 1996 and then they flash forward to 2021. And uh, it's about a group of girls on a soccer team in New Jersey who are on their way to nationals and they're playing crashes in Ontario, <laughs> in Northern Ontario. <laughs> really? I know I, I shouldn't laugh because it really is a like very stark story, but yeah, they get stranded for 19 months and they have to like survive and then they survive, but there's a lot of mystery as to what happened when they were there for 19 months. So you're watching what happens when they crash. And then also you're fast, for- fast forwarding into 2021 to see them living their lives now. Mm-hmm. But the soundtrack is just full of 90s goodness. Spotify had a playlist that was updated weekly. So every episode, they would add the songs that were in that episode. And it was just such a fun accompaniment to watching the episodes. And again, it was a weekly show. So again, it's back to that old, you know, every Sunday we would be able to watch a new episode. And it went really, really well. And then I would run to my computer and I'd look to see, like, the new songs are added. And I'd, like, play them. So... To me, it was just a really interesting use of social media, music, and specifically tying to, like, our generation of nostalgia. 
I really felt like this was one of the first times when heavy 90s nostalgia has been used to directly market or like at least connect with an audience of people our age. So that was kind of fun. I've been really, really enjoying that playlist. I also, I don't know what happened, but the 70s kind of got into me. And I'm really into Barbara Streisand and Barry Gibb right now. And okay. That song, Guilty, it was featured in Bar Bell, uh, Barb and Star Go to Vista Del Mar, which I talked about in previous episodes. And I don't know why, but I just kept coming back to it. And so now I'm just in this like loop a little bit of 70s, late 70s, early 80s, Barry Gibb, Maurice Gibb written songs. And the other one that I'm really into right now is Heartbreaker by Dionne Warwick. So like Guilty and heartbreaker i'm just like on repeat just like oh give me all these fun songs yeah so those have been my like two main things that i've been listening to um and then uh, for vinyl front i actually have been listening to the no doubt tragic kingdom album Again, mm, classic. More with the '90s nostalgia, but yeah, very nice. My partner Salem was cleaning the other day, and he's like, "Baby, don't we have this on vinyl?" He was singing "Don't Speak," and I was like, "He's like, I want to listen to it. Let's put it on vinyl." And I was like, "Absolutely!" So yeah, that was pretty fun. It was pretty awesome. Good. Great selection. Mm-hmm. So for myself, I've got two items. One is very soundtrack focused. Another is more of a discussion. I want to kind of break it out to you guys. So I was listening to um, Hans Zimmer's Dune soundtrack Mm. over the holiday season. I don't know if it was just the season or just general malaise with not being able to see movies and theaters and the frustration with the pandemic and all that. I was a bit underwhelmed with it. I know when we had talked about the things that we were looking forward to. Um, I believe it was the first Out with the Old In with the New episode. We knew that Dune was coming out or it was sometime in yeah, our, yeah. our 2021 run. I was really interested in what Hans Zimmer was going to bring to Dune. And I thought it was going to be really interesting. And it kind of kept with what I thought it was going to be. It it felt very all right. There's lots of sand. So let's make it very Middle Eastern sounding. But then it just wasn't really exciting. And I don't know if it's just kind of that build up to the sequel and whatever the the third movie, if there's going to be a third movie, Um, if there's money, I'm sure there will be. And I haven't seen the movie yet, so I haven't been able to link Uh, what I was listening to to the visuals. But I would say that I was as I was listening to it, there was nothing that was really jumping out to me. And I'd say that's probably the first time I've been a bit sort of disappointed with something that that Hans Zimmer had had put out and there was so much hype around it and everybody was getting gearing up for it. It sounds like the movie is really good, maybe not stellar, but I'm not too sure because I haven't seen it and I haven't even talked to too many people about it, but that was definitely something I was listening to over the holiday, just trying to get into it and maybe trying to gear myself up for it and just didn't really, didn't really jump out to me. Anthony, have you seen it? Yes. So I went and saw it. I liked the movie uh, I'm really looking forward to the follow-up because I, I want to see where this story goes. So I like that, uh, where it's set up. I like the soundtrack in connection to the movie. 
And I remember coming home and listening to it once and mm-hmm. having a similar reaction. Okay. I was like, okay, I don't really need to listen to this right now. I've listened to it, but I really like it as part of the movie. And like when I was in the movie and watching it, I was really enjoying the music. But yes, definitely it's one of those things that doesn't carry over into the non-viewing of it. I'm, I'm not really keen on listening to it. Um, it's never something that I've come back to. Fair. No, that that's good so. to know. I'm, I'm not losing my mind here. And... No. Okay. The other thing that I wanted to bring to the table, because we talk so much about Disney and we talk so much about soundtracks, is Encanto. Oh. oh. Yes. Yes. I'm interested because I still have not watched it. Okay. Okay. So I know, Jason, you've seen it, and I believe we were talking through Twitter. You had some thoughts on it, so I think this will be a good sort of discussion and then kind of see how Anthony feels once he sees it. I would say that going into Encanto, I was looking forward to it, and in watching it, the music was great. The score done by the same guy who did Coco, so that comes in extremely well. Lin-Manuel Miranda comes in and does the music and the songs. It's very Hamilton-y, like the songs do have that sort of Broadway feel, but his Broadway feel. So kind of very much a... It, it has the classic sort of musical style to it and then the more modern style to it. it and you definitely sort of get that throughout the the soundtrack. It's really great. Um, Surface Pressure, I think, is one of my favorite songs on the soundtrack. It's uh, the the Big Strong Characters song, I believe. And it's it's a really nice sort of I have to present as being strong on the outside. But on the inside, I'm I'm feeling it. I'm really under pressure. It was It's a really great song. And everybody is talking about We Don't Talk About Bruno, which is also a really great song. But the movie itself, I thought, was really, really disappointing. I just did not connect with the story at all. And it felt like disjointed from this really strong slate of music and songs. So I was really interested to get, Jason, your official take on it. And then we can come back to to Anthony what you've heard. Yeah. And then once you see it, you come back and let us know what you think of it. Yeah, I my experience is a lot like yours. I didn't go quite as far as listening to the songs afterwards and like learning the the track titles or anything like that. But I felt like I wanted to like the film a lot. I mean, I love the fact that they were showing sort of like various complexions of Latina. Well, Latinidad, I'll just I'll, I'll call it that instead of trying to do the whole Latinx thing. But mm-hmm. um, I, I appreciated that. The little kid with like the, the fantastic afro and all that stuff. Like I, I identified hard with like all of that. The fact that it was apparently in Colombia was something that took a while. Like it was not readily obvious in the start of the film. Like it it only became obvious a little ways into it. That was weird. Then it, the film teases this sort of like, uh, we're dealing with like immigration issues in it, except if Colombia has that sort of story, I am absolutely not familiar with it at all. And I don't know like what context that would be with, you know, given the surrounding countries. But it was really confusing. Like, you know, I, I think to Don, your point, this really deviated from the typical formula of a Disney film. Like, usually there is a very clear antagonist. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah and yeah, yeah. 
there was not like no. in this film it was really it was really confusing there were lots i mean there were lots of plot holes like it was really really bad in that regard because it's like okay who are these people mm-hmm. why do these people have powers why is this house significant why was the house not significant towards the end? Because it just sort of became this afterthought when, like, you know, the film sort of plays itself out. Why was everybody in this village dependent on... I mean, aside from the fact that they had special abilities, like, there were just so many problems with the actual story itself. It made it hard to fully appreciate this film. And it was really... It was really so much different from Coco in that regard because it's like... You know, there there was so much... You fell in love with, like, all of those characters from, like... Or hated, <laughs> you know, yeah, one yeah, character yeah. in particular with Coco. Whereas with this, it was like, I, I don't know what's happening. And I don't understand why everybody... Like, there are just lots of problems with it. So, yeah, Anthony, I mean, I'm <laughs> sorry no. to, like, no, you know, no, no. take this gigantic dump all over the film <laughs> before you actually need to go see it. But I would be surprised if you hey no i think uh to reference an earlier episode it's your luca because <laughs> interestingly enough the the criticisms that you guys are both talking about i have heard primarily with the absence of an antagonist and how that did affect the viewing of the story because that can play out very awkwardly. I think of Soul was another example where there was no primary antagonist. And I think that was done in a way that I really enjoyed. So I think the deviation from the form I can appreciate. But if they deviate and it's not done well, that is a bit of a worry. Because you're just like, oh, did you... Again, it's one of those things that... And I'm actually going to talk about this in my... Um, Part today because I did a, I'm doing a documentary about somebody who worked in Disney Animation, and it's um, really interesting how the process of animation and how the story and creative process can impact the final results and what we what they wanted to start off with and what ends up coming out is complete is I would argue more disruptive than a regular film production. And animation has a weird way of, like, when you produce animation, you've produced scenes, and you can change the dialogue, but you can't change what's happening in the scene. So you kind of have to use what you've created in that sense. And so sometimes story changes can create very inconsistent results because there's been so many outside influences. Right. So that's yeah. where I'm really, It's it, again, interesting you guys are talking about uh, Encanto when I'm going to be looking at Howard Ashman and the process in which like 80s Disney animation kind of went through a very similar process that's kind of happening right now, actually. So, hmm. And I'm good with Disney wanting to deviate a little bit from, or, or as much as they want to, from the standard story structure. I mean, good grief. We've had the same sort of seven yes. stories replayed over and over and over again, but where it seems like that divide happens between Pixar and Disney, where like Pixar does take the time to really get you invested in the characters and like pulls on the heartstrings, makes it emotional and has either a proper antagonist or a proper sort of build up to it or both. Whereas in Canto, I would be fine with either or whether it had a proper antagonist or not, 
or whether it had a really smart sort of pre-story to to give you sort of or backstory to give you this idea of who this family is and what the deal is. It was slap slapdash on both fronts. One just wasn't there, period. And the other just felt like, yeah, it was just there was no rhyme or reason as to why did the water suddenly light up and save them? Why did it border them off from the rest of Colombia? Why are the rest of these people with them? I know everybody was escaping, but who is this village? who's like if there's nobody from the outside coming in like how are all these kids being born and what's the the whole nature of the family tree and that thing are those roots pretty twisted like what is like explain this more to me rather than just giving me the slate of characters giving some of them powers some of them not and then trying to get me invested in the character who doesn't and how that relates to the rest of the family and the powers themselves like aren't fully fleshed out you're not really provided them in a yeah. in a really good way, like it just it it's weak overall. I felt. Have either of you seen The Greatest Showman? No, no. The Hugh Jackman musical. Oh yeah, movie yeah. That came out a couple of years ago, so it sounds like it's exactly the same thing. I love the shit out of that soundtrack, and I put it on all the time. The music is amazing. It's by the people who did uh, Dear Evan Hansen, and like so that like they've got a really good set of songs, but the movie is awful like <laughs> just a show storm where you're just like how did this come about like how did you construct this and so it sounds like it's a similar process where you've got somebody writing songs and they've like yeah this is what we're gonna do for the music and then you're just like but what about the story right yeah <laughs> and again that happens a lot more in an animation than you think well generally a lot of the disney films that i can you know recall sitting down for and like paying attention to it seems like they generally like it it felt coherent from start to end in terms of the story itself and Kanto felt really disjointed it's almost like they played telephone with the writing of the story it's like somebody started with this concept and was like okay i'm done here take it from here and then it's like they produced the animation around it or something like like it was just i don't know I would be really interested to see what your take is on the film, but musically, yeah, it was it was cool. I wish there was just more to that story to make me really care. I think there was some. I can only contrast it to Coco, just in terms of like you know, sort of like a similar, different, like a different story that isn't usually told by Disney, and like you know, them trying to be a bit more thoughtful about like the stories they tell. the The music in there was so very tied to the storyline and the the purpose it was very easy to put that album on after the fact and just sort of relive the scenes in your head just because it's like they did such a great job of linking what was happening to the the individual songs as they came up whereas with Encanto I feel like if I were to listen to that soundtrack now I would be just as confused as I was during the film just because it was like, it's not well connected. No, I'm with you for sure. Well, I'm going to put it on tonight for Salem and I's movie night at dinner. So hopefully I might be able to give you a breakdown. To be continued. Yeah, Yeah. I'd like to hear, but I hope we haven't unduly covered or colored your perception of what the film is going to be. But... No, 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 because it's interesting, because when it first debuted, I remember it getting a lot of, lot of good reviews. 
Mm-hmm. So like I already was like, oh, I, I like my interest in it died off pretty quickly. And then actually what's been happening now is people around me have been watching it and they love it. And so that's how I'm coming into it is that I'm like, oh, okay, I guess I do have to watch this. So yeah, I've been, I was hoping to watch it last night, but mm, I'm lazy. It's getting really great reviews. It's 90% on Rotten Tomatoes, which is fantastic. Oh, wow. So, I mean, there's definitely a huge contingent so of individuals who... maybe it's just you too. Mm-hmm. It probably is. <laughs> probably. Maybe, maybe, but I, I'm really curious about what it is they are finding that they enjoy about it, though. Because it's like... I don't know. I mean, there are aspects of what they tried to do that I'm really behind. But in terms of the actual story itself, like, it's really difficult to sort of, I don't know, find the good in it. Hey, mm, different really. strokes for different folks, right? Like, exactly. I, yeah, I'll report back soon. Please do. Final thing I just wanted to mention really, really briefly because uh, I enjoyed it over the holiday break was uh, Tick, Tick, Boom. Lin-Manuel oh. Miranda doing the uh, the movie about um, uh, Andrew Garfield, yes? Yes. What is the character? Jonathan Larson. Jonathan Larson is the writer of uh, Rent who Wait, died. Wait, hold up. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. Let's take this back a minute. Jonathan mm-hmm. Larson, yes, wrote Le- Rent, died. Gavin and Hobbs? Nope. No, Rent. Rent the Broadway musical? Rent well, no, no, I mean, I know you're saying that, but I'm like, Jonathan Larson, like, wait, isn't that the same? Okay. <laughs> Where do I know that Larson? Well, okay, keep going. Sorry. Yeah. No, 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 that's so, all right. A couple sidetracks. Yeah. So, yes. So, Andrew Garfield plays Jonathan Larson, the, who wrote the musical Rent, um, died before um, yeah. it was he was able to see it. So this is this is Tick Tick Boom is the title of a musical that he did between Rent no. and his first musical, which is yes. Superbia. Stop. Yeah, you're blowing really, my really, mind right now. Really, really great, great music. Lin Manuel Miranda directed it. Really de- goes heavy into the classic sort of oh, Broadway no. story. Are you it's kidding really, me? It's really good. This is so exciting. And again, I'm also going to talk about Howard Ashman and how he died too soon, much like Jonathan Larson. Yes. So I would highly recommend Tick Tick Boom. I will not say anything more about it. It is really good. I mean, it's already pre-established. I mean, everything's pulled from Jonathan Larson's music. So Yeah, I was just going to say I'm familiar with the fact that he did write two other plays. And I was like, I just made that connection now that I'm like, oh, my God, this is his play. I thought it was about Jonathan Larson. Oh, my God. Well, it's kind of both. It's yeah, so yeah, Tick Tick yeah, Boom yeah. is so it's self autobiographical. No, yeah, it, highly I, recommend. Yeah, it was like really a, really good. Yeah, exciting. There you go. Sorry. So I no 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 don't apologize for being no. excited about things. I'm sorry. Okay, ASMR apologies. <laughs> new, our, our new segment here on even the score. Jason, oh. you look puzzled. Yeah, because I'm trying to figure out why do wasn't there some famous Larson. Animator yes, Gary Larson, the other side, oh, the far side. He did the far side. Oh, okay, okay, yeah. all right. There you are. That's funny. All right. I, you know what? It took me a moment, but I went your where your mind went because Larson too. I was like, and then I was thinking, I was like, isn't that the Garfield guy? <laughs> well, that's yeah, uh, okay. Jim Davis, Jim, yeah. Jim Davis, or whatever. But I think that should do it pretty much for uh, our what you're listening to. I think we will take a short break and we'll jump right into our main topic, which is looking at documentaries. I thought, hey, 
What a way to spend a day. Hey, what a way to spend a day. I make a vow right here and now. I'm gonna spend my time this way. Well, all right, let's get into our main topic here. We are going to be talking about documentaries, and I think there's a lot of discussion that can be had about the topic of documentaries and documentary filmmaking. Um, we are talking about a subject matter that is essentially the whole reason why film and cinema and all this wonderful media that we have is available to us right now, because basically cinema started by trying to depict the human experience. Classically, the first things that were shown in theaters were just images of people or a train coming towards the camera and freaking out audiences because they had never seen stuff like this before. Then you start to get into the more romanticized period of documentaries where you start looking at the 1920s with Nanook of the North and kind of getting more into, all right, this is more subject matter driven, goes all the way up into today where documentaries cover every single topic basically known to man. And it's covered in varying different ways, which is really interesting. And I think that's the beauty of the, the genre. We have a lot of different takes on documentary. You have your typical sort of sit down, one chunk, one subject matter. You have things like The Last Dance, which is the Michael Jordan documentary, which is, I believe it was 10 parts. So right at the beginning of the pandemic, it was released, really sort of filled a gap that a lot of people were, were looking for something to watch that was new. And, and there was kind of this escapism to it on a really interesting subject. So we see stuff like that. We have anthology series, things like 30 for 30 from ESPN, which again is more sports related, but they take individual topics and put it into a series of things and they provide it to individual directors. So there's a ton of different documentaries out there, but I think there's really interesting musical conversations we can have in relation to the topic, which is uh, why I think it's a wonderful topic for us to jump back into our uh, podcast here in 2022 and jump right into the subject. So who would like to go first with their, their first take? on some of the documentaries they've brought to the table. I can start if you'd like. By all means, Anthony, uh, jump um, in. And also, I got to say, Don, that was a really good introduction. <laughs> I really enjoyed the way you like took us through a bit of a journey uh, to bring us to where we're going to talk about today. I but know, right? That was very well written, so kudos I've, to I've you. I've had all break. I've had all break <laughs> to practice. <laughs> well, I think what I love best about documentaries, and I have been a huge fan of documentaries ever since I was a young kid. I remember watching PBS and, like, watching, like, uh, I really enjoyed, like, behind the music. So, like, all through my years, I've really enjoyed documentaries, and there's been a lot of wide range of topics that I've seen. And so when we chose this genre... And I wanted to like go through and like really bring some of my favorite documentaries that I've seen. I got really excited, but then I got overwhelmed because I was like, holy crap, I have a lot of documentaries that I really enjoy that are very like very real and very, you know, eliciting emotion. But the two I chose for today that are connected to music and soundtracks in a way that I think is really interesting and really sums up my interest in soundtracks. So the first documentary I want to talk about is Dig. Have either of you heard of it? No. Have you seen it? 
So, Dig is a documentary about the love-hate relationship between two uh, alternative 90s alternative bands, uh, the Dandy Warhols and the Brian Jonestown Massacre. 1995. This is the year I met Anton Newcomb and his band, the Brian Jonestown Massacre. This is the story of us and our bands over seven years. Gentlemen, I want to introduce a band that knows where I live, the Brian Jonestown Massacre. These bands came out of Portland, and back in the 90s, before they were even mainstream and had achieved some success, a documentary filmmaker started following them around and filmed them for seven years. Oh, wow. And through that process, tracked the trajectories of two bands through the record industry, and it was fascinating. It is such an interesting documentary because, again, first of all, to take seven years of documentary like footage and boil that down to a two-hour movie, you're going to... Like, things are going to be displaced. You're not going to include every single thing that happened in those seven years. Mm -hmm. Right. But... What I think this in the documentary does so well is it covers a line between mental illness and the terrible, awful things that the record industry does. Mm. And so in a time when we have Free Britney and, you know, she was in conservatorship for 13 years, the bands that started out in the 90s, the Dandy Warhols and the Brian Jonestown Massacre, both dealt with internal struggles, but the Brian Jonestown Massacre, specifically the lead singer, does have mental health issues and is affected by them quite regularly. And so a lot of the drama that's in the first part of the movie is about how they were really into drugs and they were into psychedelic rock and they just were all about performing and it was all about that raw bohemian ideal that you're just here for music and I'm just here to play music. And you can see that play out with him, but he also has severe mental illness that is untreated, undiagnosed, and it's really affecting those relationships between his band and this other band, the Dandy Warhols. And so on the flip side, as you, you know, see the what's happening with the Brian Jonestown Massacre and seeing how they're struggling to make it and very often sabotage themselves to get into the record industry, the Dandy Warhols are a clean-cut bohemian um, band from suburbia. And they even call themselves, they're like, they we're the most undramatic band in all of America. And so you see this contrast between Brian Jones and Massacre, where it's just tapping into this awesome creativity, but there's chaos. And you see this controlled, reserved creativity from the Dandy Warhols. And they do get into the record industry. They score a record deal. And then all of a sudden... They are taken for a ride. You know, they're owed, or sorry, they owe the record industry millions of dollars and they haven't even released their first album yet. So you have this like the worst experience you could ever have of going into the record industry. And that was kind of playing out with them. So over the seven years, this story of these two bands is so fascinating because it's their life story, but it's also kind of a a cautionary tale of, you know, what happens when you have too much creativity that's unrestrained and what happens when you try to restrain creativity through capitalist ventures. So both the music of the bands, I've seen the Bram Jonestown Massacre live, and they're a really great band. It's psychedelic, like shoegaze, air rock, and it's really great. But they played for three and a half hours. 
I stayed for two because I was like, okay, I get it. Like, this is a lot of music. But they're known for, like, eight-hour performances. Oh, wow. So, like, they're just really that old-school psychedelic rock, you know. But this movie was released in 2003. Um, And so kind of coming back to it 20 years on is really interesting because, you know, both these bands, I saw Brian Jonestown Massacre four years ago. And that was really interesting to be like see where he is. And he actually had gotten himself together. He was receiving treatment and he was a really creative person. So I just really wanted to talk about this documentary because I love music and I love music documentaries. And I think this one for me is a crown jewel. Um, it's really one that I keep coming back to and I love the story of it. But also just the music itself is music that I can listen to. Good selection. Yeah, it's a definite. Uh, I'm really proud of that one. I like it. I I got the special edition DVD and everything. So nice. nice. I mean, just looking at the Wikipedia page, I mean, the director took 2,500 hours worth of footage and put it down into not even two hours. Like it's a it's 107 minutes. That's a ton of just trying to shrink it down and get this picture of from from when they began to when they finished. I mean, that's hugely impressive. Yes. And again, like the band, both bands have been critical of the final product in the sense that they're like, you, you cut out so much context, which is totally fair. But I think for overall, I think she created a really good narrative that I'm like, even if I'm missing part of this story, the parts that you're including and kind of bringing me along for are amazing. Awesome. Yeah. I mean, I think the thing that I'm wrestling with the hardest out of that whole conversation is just the seven years part, right? Because it's like, what are you doing? That's that's a real dedication, right? And it's like, mm-hmm. what are you doing to keep yourself afloat for seven years while you're basically trying to pursue, I don't know, this this purple or a pink <laughs> dragon or whatever of yeah, a yeah. story that you're trying to tell? That's fascinating to me. Yeah, and it, like again, uh, the movie is uh, I I would say it's coded in bohemian ideology. Um, the Dandy Warhols have several albums that use the word bohemian, and I think especially in the '90s there was that bohemian chic, you know, just living your art truth and just doing whatever it is. And I think honestly, it was just a, a film student, like she started and she started filming, and then I mean the the movie was a hit, so she has a career from that now. But I agree, seven years is a big time investment. <laughs> That's impressive. It just shows the commitment of the artistry to this genre and and much of sort of cinema and film and TV, like people just committing to it and damning the consequences and going broke and just yeah. really living for the art. This is a perfect depiction of that. I would agree. Mm-hmm. so yeah that's my first choice is like as the documentaries i hope people can check out both the musics um and the documentary itself because they're really fun but the second documentary i want to talk about is called howard as a lyricist the last great place to do musicals is in animation the combination of howard ashman's talent and the walt disney name was a home run waiting to happen uh and it's about howard ashman And he was one of the two songwriters, uh, Howard Ashman and Alan Menken. uh, And they're most known for writing uh, the songs for The Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, and Aladdin. And the reason I want to talk about this is Howard Ashman was a gay guy who died of AIDS. And I don't want to be flippant when I say that and say that I'm boiling it down to that. But uh, what I've really been 
kind of reflecting on lately is, especially as we're in a pandemic, a global pandemic, and as I've reflected in the past, the way the world responded to the COVID pandemic is very different than the way in which the world reacted to the AIDS pandemic. And so there is a lot to unpack there, and I'm going to get a little political here, but Howard Ashman dying as a gay man from AIDS is a tragedy, and it's a horrible, horrible end to such a beautiful life. And I think the documentary itself just lays out his story so beautifully, and I think it really highlights how important his talent and his songwriting abilities were in that they captured an entire, I would say they defined an entire Disney generation. Those three movies, yeah. I mean, like The Little Mermaid, mm-hmm. Beauty and the Beast, and Aladdin. Fair the, enough. I would say The Lion King is a crown jewel, but those three movies were so iconic and they were so pivotal and they changed the way in which animation was being consumed and the way in which Disney was operating. And I would say that the way in which that happened steered the ship to where we are today. And Howard Ashman is largely responsible for those three films. I would say two and a half, less Aladdin. But this all started about five years ago, five, six years ago. And I watched this movie called Waking Sleeping Beauty. Uh, And it's on Disney Plus, and it's a fascinating documentary about the Disney Animation Studios from about the early 80s into the mid-90s. And it details this story about how Disney Animation was crashing, and it was pretty much gone to nothing. And they had been moved to portables, they were just being treated like there was nothing. And this is the studio that developed animation, that created animated movies. And now you're sitting here, and, you know, animation is in such a funk. And so in that documentary, there's this whole series or this whole part where Howard Ashman comes in. And when Little Mermaid was in production, it was having a really hard time finding its story beats. And so the original directors floundered for like seven or eight months. And I use that term specifically. That was a nice pun. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, so they kind of floundered over the script for like six to eight months. They couldn't get the story beats right. And it was Jeffrey Katzenberg, actually, who was at Disney at that time, said he knew Howard uh, uh, from the Little Shop of Horrors, and he asked him to come in. And Howard Ashman came in, and he wrote Under the Sea. And that was his way of introducing Ariel's want. And so from that storyboarding meeting, and it's fascinating to see footage of it because he just comes in, he puts in a tape that he's like, hey, I recorded this song for the movie. This is what we're going to do. And he has a very commanding presence that, you know, he just comes in and he's like, what does Ariel's want? What does she want? And nobody could answer because at that point they hadn't figured out what Ariel wanted. And so him coming in and writing that song literally changed the entire trajectory of the story. And it was then that, you know, she wants to live on land. She wants to be with Prince Eric. She's going to sell her voice so that she can get that. And then that's your drama. Up where they walk, up where they run, up where they stay all day in the sun, wandering free. Wish I could be part of that world. What would I That was all Howard Ashman, from everything from writing the songs and the music with Alan Menken, to the character design of Ursula, 
there was multiple pictures of versions they were going to try and use for Ursula, and somebody had taken Divine as an inspiration. And that's <laughs> what they wrote, and that's what they drew as Ursula. And Howard Ashman came in, and he picked the one that looked like Divine. And so Howard Ashman had so much involvement in The Little Mermaid. And I don't think he gets enough credit for that. I think we, obviously, he won the Oscar for Under the Sea, so everyone kind of knows that. But he was so instrumental to the story beats in that, that he was brought on to Aladdin. And so from Aladdin, it was the same thing. The film was in production for a good year before they could figure out what the story was going to be. In comes Howard Ashman, and he figures out how Aladdin is going to hide his identity. Now that kind of takes it kind of takes over and it it's, it continues to struggle, but at that same time he comes over to Beauty and the Beast, and his final gift to this world is Beauty and the Beast, and he again had so much input in that they he created the story from the songs. Tale as old as time, true as it can be. The way in which this documentary highlights the music and the passion and the love and the overall joy that he brought to his his art, his creativity, is just, it broke my heart. And so by the end of it, I was just sobbing because he's passed away on March 14th from complications of AIDS. And a, bar, a large part of the documentary talks about how he was in the closet both in sexuality and in his AIDS diagnosis. His fear that Disney was going to fire him. After he had won the Oscar, he was afraid to submit Beauty and the Beast demos because he was afraid that he was going to get laughed at because they had it had been revealed that he had AIDS. So he was terrified that they were going to, you know, fire him. And that was the reality back in the 90s. And that is just, I mean, onto itself a, a terrible thing. But... Reflecting back on it and looking as a elder queer who is no longer with us, it really broke my heart. And that's what I think I really wanted to bring to this table and share was that I loved this documentary, not because it was somebody I got to find out had so much input into the things that I love, but it was just a, such a beautiful reminder of the people that we lost from the AIDS pandemic. And to bring it back to the, you know, the Jonathan Larson tick, tick, boom, I think those are the stories that I need to see. And those are the stories I think the world needs to see. And I think those are the ones that help us understand things like an AIDS pandemic and why an entire generation of, you know, queer men and women were lost. And so that is like a really heavy beat that, again, I'm like, oop, way to bring it down, Anthony. But I think it's just so important to give that historical context to the things you love. Obviously, I'm a big Disney fan, and I know you guys are too. So, yeah, that's why I really wanted to share that today and, and bring that to the table. Yeah, hear, here to the message that these stories need to be told. We need to hear yeah. it more and more, and it needs to be brought to light. Because if anything, like exactly what we're living through right now, it was ten times worse and completely not talked about really deliberately by people and society and government where there was so many suffering, no help given. And it was essentially just the death sentence. It was, yeah. I have it, it, it's over. It's not like what it is now. And we need to hear these stories. We can't go through this again. There needs to be this acceptance and this willingness to try and be helpful to those who need it. So this is 
another great like you you brought it back to tick tick boom there's tons of that in that because we're talking about 90s new york like a, a huge lgbtq population occupies the theater scene and jonathan larson's friends and colleagues and co-workers and collaborators they're all gay individuals and many of them are suffering from aids so no, it's good that this story brings that to light as well, and it sounds like it's just an amazing documentary. To spotlight, I would say, one of the two individuals who revitalized Disney. I mean, if I'm, I've got the Wikipedia up here. From, I'd say, the early 70s to the late 80s, there is not a really good Disney animated film in the bunch. Yeah. And it's just, it, it's filler. Like, The Jungle Book is seven or 67 then we go to things like the aristocats good not great i would say like robin hood is one of my favorite disney movies but that's an outlier i mean when you think about classic disney you're thinking about the cinderellas the peter pans lady and the tramp things like that and then there's just filler within rescuers is fine not stellar fox and the hound is a beautiful movie again but not nothing that kind of jumps out as that's the top five disney films it's not until little mermaid hits that things just revitalize and it basically takes the company back into what it is now which is a huge juggernaut buying up every single property that they can it it is because of the movies that you mentioned little mermaid beauty and the beast aladdin lion king and lion king's the the last of the four yes and that's when i think you have four years of like all right, we're we're back at this again. Now we can start bringing in the Elton Johns and the Hans Zimmers and they can start really doing the heavy lifting and we're going to start bringing in like Phil Collins to do Aladdin or to do Tarzan and we're going to drift out. Exactly. And so that's why I say they really started that whole trend of bringing in musical talent as the driving creating force rather than it being like, "Oh, let's just put in some pop songs." Yeah. Which I'm not saying is bad, but there is a earnestness and i think there is a timeless quality when you create a vid- original songs for animation instead of just using reusing pop songs which is again i'm not saying one is better than the other i just prefer a, a rig- original songs i i can't help living under the sea as a poor unfortunate soul be a part of my world <laughs> right right <laughs> it's, it's the bare necessities of what we're talking about with uh, hashtag <laughs> there we go nice I can show you the world shining shimmering splendid tell me princess now when did you last let your heart decide I can open your eyes well so I guess I'll say that I mean, yeah, I hadn't seen it. It looks like it's on Disney Plus, though, so I'm going to check that out. Sometimes I feel like, you know, maybe it's not so much that things fell off, but it's just my attention span for them sort of, like, disappeared. And listening to you guys talk about it, as a kid, obviously, all in with, like, Disney films, grew up with, like, some of the amazing ones. And I just figured it was me, right? Like, you know, the films were still great, but, like, I just wasn't paying attention to them because I was into things like Transformers and, you know, and the gem opening song and and stuff like that. Like, things that were cooler. But listening to you guys tell it, it's like, oh, yeah, well, the period that I actually kind of paid attention to Disney again was kind of intentional. And it sounds like it has everything to do with you know this howard ashman person which is trippy but then again not entirely surprising and it's 
I guess it's a little disappointing to me that I didn't really, this person wasn't on my radar. Like, I guess this is, um, okay, execute me later. But when I think about, like, famous people who, uh, of the LGBTQ uh, community that passed away from AIDS, the first thing I think about is that one person from freaking real world that, like, you know, they focused on his story or whatever as he was, like, dying of AIDS. Like, that's, like, the main story that I think about of, like, you know, somebody coming through, like, the pandemic who was gay and passed away. Instead of somebody a lot more notable like this that probably, not to say, Uh, you know, fans of that person (laughs) don't at me and, you know, like, come at me and, like, I'm not trying to diminish his life. But when it all comes down to it, it's, like, people that haven't had a much more significant impact, not necessarily getting that attention in anyways. I, that's that's pretty cool. And so, yeah, we'll definitely have to check that out. Yeah, I'm glad you guys are interested. And I'm glad, again, that that's the that space was created for that because that is an interesting story. It's something even as, like, I remember, and this is a personal anecdote, and I, I hope this isn't too much of a downer, but, like, I was so into The Little Mermaid. It was the first movie I saw in theaters twice. I, like, I begged. I would journal about it. I loved that movie. It was just, it became a part of me. But it definitely was me being gay little Anthony. Like, I was a little gay kid. And I was just like, I love Ursula. I love Ariel. And I love Flounder. And I love them all. And I was just so into it. But my parents didn't know what to do with that. So by the time Beauty and the Beast came out, I remember I wasn't allowed to go see it. Because it was too girly. And I remember how important that movie was to me. And when I did see it, it's still one of my personal favorites. Like, it's such an... Yeah, it's such an important movie for me personally in that regard. Because it it really allowed me to be me. I was going to enjoy that movie of who I was. And even though my parents didn't understand why I was into it. And, you know, they've come a long way since then. That was a really, like, tough moment that I was like, oh, I don't understand why I'm not allowed to watch this movie. This wonderful, beautiful movie. And then when I did, I was like, what's the big deal? <laughs> like, And then they just had to listen to me saying be our guest for two years. So that's <laughs> what you get for trying to keep me in the closet, mom and dad. <laughs> <laughs> Again, that's funny. I'm, I'm trying to, like, lighten a tough yeah, subject. Of course. <laughs> of course. Well, funny but heavy at the same time. Just that's just like my period. Well, on that <laughs> note, um. Yeah, do you guys want to talk about your documentaries now? (laughs) Sure. (laughs) Well, I'll jump in because, you know, going into this, I'm not the biggest fan of documentaries, generally speaking. I my Actually, my wife loves them. And, you know, I sit through a fair amount of them more so to, uh, you know, happy wife, happy life type thing. (laughs) But there are some, and, you know, I... This conversation kind of makes me realize it's like, oh, yeah, there's certain things that were documentaries that I barely consider such because I was really connected to the storyline. Like you mentioned the series that like MTV used to do, like behind the music or whatever or VH1 or whatever, yeah, like man. all those things I used to watch. But it, like I never really felt like they were true documentaries, not because I'm 
you know, trying to crap on what a documentary is, but more so just because I was connected to usually the artists that they were like, I was watching at that moment. So the ones that I focused on, and I guess I kind of want to go into this with a quote. I don't know if you guys, you know, I'm a hip hop head, almost always have been and probably always will be. There's this artist uh, by the name of Fonte, who's like one half of this group called Little Brother, who was like really big in the early 2000s. He still does his own solo stuff, and I still follow it like religiously, but he had this song called Who Loves You More? And one of the lyrics from that song goes like this. I'm going to read it out here because I think it's pretty relevant to the films that I chose. Because most of my heroes had f***ed up lives, coked up kids, three or four wives, Hoes in every city, enough side bitches for three or four tribes. From Marvin to Basquiat, it comes with a caveat. So with that sort of overhead, if you will, the first documentary I want to talk about was uh, Quincy's documentary, the one about his life. I would like to have you meet one of the finest musicians that I've ever known, Mr. Quincy Jones. Pressure's on, Quincy's here. I think we all easily know who Quincy Jones is. I mean, you know, Mm -hmm. if for no other reason he is the producer that will forever be linked behind the success of Thriller and, you know, but obviously his career is way bigger than that. And his life, like a lot of other musicians of uh, serious success, is complicated. I watched that documentary and first of all, I'm just going to say that I think it's tremendously cool that the music for his documentary were pretty much, I think, exclusively from all the albums he did over the course of his life. Like, to have a catalog like that where you can sort of fully soundtrack your own life. That's bonkers. That's mm. so it's cool. It's so cool. <laughs> um, Quincy, why you gotta be so cool? <laughs> I mean, so, you know, I, yeah, for real. So I was, you know, I was kind of geeking out on that. And I think... One thing that I noticed as I was like watching it again, because I watched it like before we had this conversation on his wall at one point, some living space, I don't know if it was truly a living room. He has Thriller, like in one of those recording industry sort of like cataloging, like I don't know who does it. I'm sure it's like some company that I'll never know the name of because I have no reason to know. Right. But he has freaking Thriller and all the times that it went platinum in like this rosette like it's this huge flower thing like behind this gigantic couch that he's on and i was just like wow not just because that's how many times through went platinum but also just to think it's like he was a part of that you know what i mean but okay so i I digress because that's that really is only a fraction of what his catalog was like i mean he literally started with freaking like dizzy gillespie and like you know when you think about like sort of the beginning of the jazz greats i mean he was like like an apprentice coming up to them from that period all the way to the present. I mean, he's still here. He's still involved with music projects and plenty of soundtracks along the way of various films that you wouldn't even necessarily associate with Quincy Jones, which is also kind of batshit crazy. But just like, you know, going through his story and just married several times, 
you know, had... They sort of hint at the fact that he may have dabbled in different drugs, but it sounded like alcohol was really like sort of his thing of choice and probably the thing that caused him the most uh, heartache. But just, I don't know if I started collecting Quincy Jones albums because I saw that documentary or because I started collecting Quincy Jones because part of me is kind of like, he can't be here too much longer. I want to have all of those things before they become impossible to find, which is why, you know, I have a decent collection of his, uh, his various, you know, his jazz albums up to the present. But it's just like, I, I think the one thing that sort of took me aback, and I honestly, you know, I should have paid more attention. I guess I could Google like, you know, who actually did the documentary and like who arranged, because I guess, you know, it's not like they produced the songs, the songs were all his, but like who sort of ordered it to the different scenes. But I think the thing for me, just as being like a fan of the music and being a fan of most of the music he's done throughout the course of his life, I was just sort of taken aback by the fact that, again, here you've got this person who's been so prolific with like, you know, from like the jazz to the R&B to other stuff. He has produced so much music, either created directly or produced, that you can score his entire life story with his music and still not touch all the music he produced. That was that was kind of my takeaway. And I mean, you know, it was, you know, it was cool seeing like his uh, daughter, Rashida, sort of like so involved with that documentary. And the fact that, you know, I mean, you get to the end of the, uh, the documentary and he's still chugging along and um, involved with the uh, National Museum of African American History and all that it was it was really just one of those geeking out on his music moments because you know i think i got i may have told you guys like when we first started doing this podcast early on like i geeked out on learning that he was responsible for like the austin powers like the the bossa nova yes. joint that you know that like is synonymous with austin powers films when i played the album that had that on there and it came on i was like my jaw yes. was on the floor <laughs> and i was like holy shit who knew? Um, you know, just the other moments like that that just are so tied up. And and I started to talk about like one of the albums that are is on my radar that at least for the moment isn't all that easy to find is like The Wiz because it's like, you know, him producing that, like it's not exactly an easy thing to find at the moment. I don't know the last time that there was a reprint of that particular uh film soundtrack but like it was you know that was pretty great work and then i think that was some of what got the ball rolling for the relationship between quincy and michael to actually produce off the wall and then thriller so it's like whoa like you know what i mean it's it's just very very cool so i don't know i'm probably like geeking out to you all at the moment but that's kind of where that's the first one that i've wanted to talk about just because it, it meant a lot to me just to sort of see his story i think that could be the subtitle of our podcast even the score we're just geeking out because uh. that's basically that's what we do we find the passion projects and we really want to talk about it so i think it was great um i haven't seen the documentary but i mean looking at quincy jones's life is it, it's it literally like watching and seeing and hearing from an installment in a museum like his life spans so much and does so much like the movies just alone some of the things that he was associated with like with 
the whiz for broadway and movie like roots the color purple just the more recent stuff the italian job back in the 60s i mean we did a whole episode on black exploitation and you would think like quincy jones being a, a musician composer i mean maybe he was kind of typecast to do stuff like that but the work he was producing in the 60s and 70s was in the heat of the night in cold blood like the list just kind of goes on with with these sort of big budget movies i mean they were giving him proper credo for his reputation and ability and i i really respect that and like that about this whole situation i do not want it to go um unnoticed that he was uh, responsible for the sanford and son tv theme which i'm sure (laughs) will appear somewhere in a a later tv theme song bracket that we do but his the work that he does is is amazing, and to still be chugging along like you say, Jason, still being involved in really meaningful ways, and to have a legacy that has drifted into someone like Rashida Jones, who is continuing to keep work going for him and for her, and and keeping him connected. I mean, it's it's fantastic. The man is a legend and an icon, and it should never be understated just what he has contributed to it. I really need to see this documentary and i've been meaning to i remember when it was first kind of being mauled about i really wanted to get to it just never had the opportunity but i'm sure it's got to be streaming somewhere where i can find it and netflix and catch it netflix. oh Perfect. sweet okay there we are netflix yeah um so yeah check that out when you guys get a chance because that he's a cool dude and he's been cool for a really really long time and you know it's like Especially, I think, with all of the notable people as of late from, like, you know, our childhood, like, really starting to pass by, like, frequently. Like, it's, like, almost daily where it's, like, somebody of note has passed away uh, over the last several months that, yeah, you know, you just don't want to take that sort of thing for granted. But he is one of the, the people that, like, if, you know, newer used, if I see an album of his that I don't have, I am yoinking the hell out of it and just mm-hmm. like adding it well speaking of because i again i one of the i'm looking forward to watching that documentary because i know so many references to quincy jones but i don't know a lot about his story and his life so i think that'll be really fun to fill in those gaps but to come back to your note about not being able to find the whiz on vinyl i hate to be stereotypical here but i'm allowed to because i'm quite gay <laughs> But if you check out gay record shops or record shops near gay villages, if you're around, you're probably going to find a copy of The Wiz. <laughs> really? Oh, my God. That movie is so camp and so high and so, like, wild. Yeah, it's, I don't know, it's obviously The Wizard of Oz, right? But I that movie has some psychedelic shit going on in it. Oh, yeah. And uh, gays gravitated towards it, so... I, mean, I didn't know that was a thing, to be honest with you. So it would have never even occurred to me, like, to go to specific areas or something trying to find that. Like, yeah. Again, like, my local record shop is around the corner and I live right in the gay village. So I found some pretty, like, random stuff that I was like, you'd never find this in, like, Best Buy or even, like, other local record shops. I find record shops can be very uh, representative of the communities that they're in, especially if people are selling so that's anyway that's my little like vital note of the day excellent
over the course of the pandemic, I've watched a few uh, documentaries on various jazz people, and I was about to say, like, uh, they called him Miles, but that was conflating. They called him Morgan, which is like a Lee Morgan documentary with like a, a documentary I've recently seen about uh, Miles Davis. That's the one I wanted to talk about. Yeah, The Birth of Cool. Music has always been like a curse with me. It's the first thing in my life, go to bed thinking about it and wake up thinking about it. That's all I live for. You know, much like Quincy Jones, although, you know, with the unfortunate side effect that Miles Davis isn't with us anymore and hasn't for hasn't been for a while, his life was so cool and so crazy and so at times twisted a lot like uh quincy jones but maybe to a much lesser extent you know sort of like forcing uh when it came to soundtracks like hollywood to not put them into sort of the black box yeah that whole miles davis uh documentary was just so very cool for much the same reason that the quincy jones documentary was cool i mean you know you got this person whose history goes really about as far back as Quincy Jones did. I mean, they all kind of came up in the, around about the same time as being like prominent jazz artists. And then just sort of appreciating all the folks that he touched uh, or interacted with who are still relevant today, like the Herbie Hancocks, like the Wayne Shorters. And I, it just like, it was one of those moments where like, much like the Quincy Jones, I just found myself geeking out because like their their music is his music is just so good and like his catalog is so extensive and it really did kind of push on to almost the very end of his life although you know like what i didn't know is when his like last set of albums were coming out before he passed man his struggles were real i mean like he had a serious problem with uh the drugs and whatnot and they took him out of kind of like the game for a long period of time. And then he sort of had staged this comeback right before he passed. But like some of that stuff that came out, I guess it was like the late 90s, early 2000. To listen to the documentary and to go back to listen to some of those albums now, it's like you can actually kind of hear the struggle in his his playing in a way that, you know, was not present when he was uh, much younger and sort of like on the top of his game and it just sort of having all that context about what his life was actually like and you know the, the women that he'd interacted with along the way sort of hearing their stories about like how you know their relationships eventually kind of fell apart and it, it just hearing all that context and kind of making really both of those people human in a way that you can't appreciate just by listening to their music like I wish I could sort of be one of those people that put on a Miles Davis album and sort of could just say, oh yeah, I know spiritually exactly what this person was going on, like going through his head at the or her head at the moment. I'm not there yet. Maybe one day. You know, having the actual history of that person, well, at least a perspective of their history uh, on the screen to sort of follow along, it, it helps make things make a lot more sense than they would otherwise. You know, maybe not the most interesting and like, oh gosh, you know, somebody with a DJ background sort of sticking to music docs. But I mean, for me, now there are lots of other docs that I've paid, like, you know, pay attention to, like the Super Size Me's and whatnot. But like, 
never to actually focus on their music. Um, I think generally speaking, if I'm looking at, if I'm paying attention to the music in a documentary, it's because they're talking about somebody uh, that I have a deep amount of respect for as an artist. Uh, you know, I mean, I didn't mention it, but like I saw one unlike Jaco Pistorius or whatever, like, you know, his life is super tragic too, uh, but he's freaking brilliant. You know what I mean? So just hearing those stories. But anyways, that that's sort of my take on, well, two documentaries that I wanted to talk about here, but then just sort of my take on them. But have you happened to see the the one about Miles Davis or... No, so I haven't seen The Birth of Cool, but I've watched Miles Ahead, the Don Cheadle movie. It's autobiographical, but it's also intermixed with like fictional stories. But yeah, I can appreciate how difficult and challenging his addiction issues were, and that really played out in that movie. Um, so I'm really interested to see more of his story as well, because again, I have that for a reference point. But yeah, it sounds like a really... Again, I love documentaries that have such a passion in them that you get to find little geek moments too. And like, you, there's stuff that you know, but then all of a sudden you're like, oh, I didn't know that. Or, and so it sounds like those documentaries really, that specifically, the Miles one, had that for you, which is good. Mm -hmm. I think that's the beauty of the genre is that, especially for musicians, you have an already established body of work that has emotion, that has feeling, that has a lot like built into it and you can into one thing by listening to the music but then when you get that second perspective of looking at this individual's history and seeing where addiction hits where loss hits where tragedy or where enlightenment hits like it, with something like the beatles you can kind of see like when things start to happen and then they they find like buddhism or george harrison finds buddhism and brings the beatles along like you you can see shifts and changes in music the same thing happens for individuals like quincy jones and with miles davis i mean you see what the legacy is you see the humanistic moments of it and where it influences or doesn't influence music and and jason like people get to that scientific sort of level of understanding of the music to be able to say this was like the blue period and this is why it was happening and this is where miles davis was and whatever like it's you can find people who are like that which is unbelievable and music just has that sort of allowance to the documentary setting things like behind the music on vh1 hugely popular like it spawned other sort of factions like things like pop-up video where people were watching music mm -hmm. videos and following along with the different facts and little things hidden within it we wanted to know more about musicians and the music i mean documentaries and those sorts of little infotainment sort of elements really did play into it so music is a great subject of this and not even just like specific to tragedy but it's just interesting like the mention of dig like just chronicling the the story of a band along seven years i mean it's interesting and fascinating to see how people are and while storylines may be pre-built in once you have an established artist like the the quincy jones documentary comes out in 2019 that man's been doing he's already got 28 grammys under his belt at that point so there's already an established legacy but then with like a follow along with the artist as they start with something like dig you see where the storylines start to build in you see where these sort of touch tones will come out 20 years down the road so re-watching something like that you can kind of understand oh they were here so i get it so i think the, the genre definitely does lend itself to music in a really big way. I really do want to see the the Miles Davis documentary. I recalled that Don Cheadle was doing a movie where he was depicting Miles Davis. I hadn't seen that yet. So, I mean, there's tons to go off of with just that one individual. So definitely have to pick that up. Yeah. 
And again, you know, I mean, obviously a great body of work and, you know, it also pointing out different albums, you know, like, you know, everybody sort of knows certain albums by these artists, but then like sort of highlighting, uh, taking moments to highlight some of the albums that may have flown under the radar. I think it's really great for that too. So something for crate diggers to, uh, mm-hmm. to enjoy as well. Well, I guess I'll bring my two to the table, and I've kind of split it up. I've done one that is specific to music and one that is just a general documentary that has a very interesting soundtrack. So I'm going to do the music one first. A documentary that I was introduced to way back in 2004, I believe it would be now, was a documentary called Scratch. Everywhere you go, people are buying turntables, people are scratching. Great. This is music I've been waiting all my life to hear, and I didn't know it. We're just on the brink of something new. And I watched it probably about a dozen times in about a seven-day span. I could not consume it enough, and I wanted to know everything more about the history of DJing, how scratching got introduced, like turntablism, competitions that were going on with it, body tricks, the, the DJs who I knew about but had always kind of drifted into the background, and that documentary really sort of brought people to light, like DJ Qbert, DJ Shadow, um, Mixmaster Mike, and then, of course, going all the way back to like just legendary individuals, um, Herbie Hancock being brought in there and the, the involvement of DJing into his group. I mean, it's an amazing documentary that's just so specific to a to a topic, goes through a really good history of DJing and scratching, but then kind of introduces how people have taken it and gone 18 different ways, which it, which is always interesting. You see the individuals who are really true to just crate digging and doing parties and kind of keeping it simple. You see the people who have made it big, like the, the Mixmaster Mike going out with the Beastie Boys, and you see kind of the corporate side of it. You see people who are making like records specifically for scratching. They're just tracks, and there's like guitar octaves on there, and you just move the needle around, and it's built for people to get into DJing and getting into scratching. So it's interesting the different elements that go through that entire movie but it has an amazing soundtrack not only like stuff that's established but also stuff that's happening like live in front of you and that's what I love about music documentaries you tend to have a lot of really interesting sequences where people are creating brand new things right in front of you or they're creating things like in uh, the um, get back documentary with the Beatles you're watching them create things that you know about but they didn't know about how the impact and the success and the legacy that they were going to be creating at that time. And so the the same thing happens within Scratch. And I really did enjoy it. And it's kind of a testament to labor and love, that documentary, especially when you get into the competition component of it, because these are individuals that are very kind of focused in on this one aspect of music and their world. And they talk about establishing their craft like people are honing their ability to to do anything like athletes like the 10,000 hours Malcolm Gladwell perspective comes into play and like talking about just having to steal needles from their parents and and go and play or having to like set up in dingy locations or just doing it in groups with other people who are like-minded and just kind of gathering as a commune to work on their craft and to really hone it and make it what it is. I mean, it's just, it's amazing what is established within that movie and what they kind of depict. And the beauty is there's still a lot of these individuals around to talk about it, which is really great and kind of how it drifts from 
the neighborhood into small concert venues and into large arenas and how it's just now a part of just kind of what we hear and see out there in the music world. So it's a really great documentary that if you can get a hold of it, I believe it's on YouTube for free. You can just watch the whole thing. I definitely do highly recommend checking out Scratch. I rem- it's funny because I remember watching parts of it back in university because I had friends who were really into like the DJ scene and like the club scene. So they really loved going like every Saturday night. And so uh, like I definitely remember seeing parts of it and being impressed at the idea of taking something that had already been created and then remixing it and doing it something different, adding something different to it. And I like that idea. And <laughs> Zelda is... If Anthony's be... gone a little <laughs> muted, it's because we have uh, our fourth host joining us for the <laughs> for the podcast. If there's one thing that she loves putting, rubbing her scent on is the microphone. <laughs> That's oh, awesome. While sure she don't... flashes her oh, hind no, parts Zelda, in your Zelda, face, Zelda, like, Zelda, the Zelda. cats are great for that. Stop, stop, stop. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so sorry. Oh no! Don't. Oh worry no! No, I'm. I'm. Hey, I think awesome. every pet parent can relate to <laughs> moments like that. Yes. Yeah, so anyway, scratch is good. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I second that. I mean, I I feel like I did see some of that before you kind of called it out, but I definitely like looked at it uh, after we were sort of talking about it offline, and yeah, I mean. For me, I can't say that Scratch is what made me want to take up being a DJ. That'd be disingenuous. But I can definitely relate to a lot of the things that were being said in that along the way. I mean, wanting to be a a Scratch DJ and then sort of appreciating how not straightforward that is. It's, you know, I mean, a lot of people like to sort of... A lot of times you talk about being a DJ and then you get like somebody who will like really cheesily sort of like wiki wiki and it's like, <laughs> yeah, okay, but it's a lot more complicated than that. Mm-hmm. For 95% of the population, they'll never know much more than that. I mean, like the fact that you're sort of like a percussionist and, you know, like playing melody at the exact same time with pre-existing melodies and understanding how to make that work is really complicated. There's definitely an art to it, and I'm happy to be part of that culture, but I know that there are people who, you know, if I'm half as good as a lot of the people in that documentary, that would be amazing to me. Like, I would feel accomplished, like, you know, going out of that lifestyle, I guess. I mean, for me, you know, it's not like a full-time job, but I mean, just at the point where I hang up my turntables, like, you know, if I was like, could competently do what some of those people do to like take for granted, I'd, I'd feel pretty dope. Jason, I selected this one primarily because of all of the mentions of Herbie Hancock in here. What is your consideration of Rocket in kind of the grand scheme of, of hip-hop and, and DJing? I think a lot of the things I appreciate about Rocket now are from the benefit of hindsight. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, I was a kid when Rocket you know, like came out and uh, was like that video came on, I guess, MTV. I mean, because they were the ones showing videos or I mean, I didn't have MTV, but I know I saw it. And I remember like, you know, sort of just like the animatronics, whatever you want to call what he actually did with the video was sort of confusing to me. And 
I would say that I'm pretty sure that I didn't even understand it in the context of hip hop yet because those were the 80s, right? So like most of my music experience was tied up with like all of the 80s pop. Like hip hop was something that I became a much more hyper aware of like going into like late junior high into high school. But back like when Rocket was really a thing, I was just like, oh, okay, that's that's kind of cool. But like the video is weird and I don't necessarily understand who this Herbie Hancock, like I knew nothing about like his history or anything like that. But like hearing from like the documentary, just like how that sort of moment elevated the genre that was lost on me. I'm not I'm not going to lie. But with the benefit of hindsight, I think it was really, really cool that Herbie, and again, this one of the many reasons why I think he's a genius, but just sort of like taking, not being so in his own head or just like such a purist about what he was doing that he couldn't appreciate what else was happening at the same time. Like, you know, he was, by that point, the 80s when he did Rocket, he was already like a legendary jazz artist, but you know, having his finger on the pulse of things and just saying like, wow, this is cool. This is something I want to incorporate with what I'm doing, I think just makes it that much more brilliant. And then on the other side, the fact that he incorporated scratching into that, just sort of passing that sound and that experience to so many more people who wouldn't have heard it otherwise. I don't know. I I, I have nothing but great things to say about that. Like, I think it was a great use of what was available. Uh, to him and why he's so legendary. So that was my kind of Jason pick. I I think the Herbie Hancock connection, plus it's a great documentary that I've loved for a long, long time. Now let's go into my Anthony pick. And this is more of the, this is the pick that is just a straight up documentary that has a really fascinating soundtrack done by Candyman composer Philip Glass. Oh my god, oh my god, are you going to talk about... <laughs> I'm going to talk about The Fog of War. Oh. I have asked Robert McNamara to assume the responsibilities of Secretary of Defense, and I'm glad and happy to say that he has accepted this responsibility. So The Fog of War is a documentary. It's an Errol Morris documentary who's a classic documentarian. And he is interviewing Robert McNamara. Now, Robert McNamara was the Secretary of Defense under U.S. Presidents uh, Kennedy, Johnson, and Nixon. So you can think about U.S. history at that time and what the Department of Defense is doing. We've got the Cuban Missile Crisis. We've got Vietnam. We've got Cold War. So he's a very interesting character to hear from. And he's a riveting storyteller in his own right. And what Errol Morris does is he brings in Robert McNamara and sits him down and talks about this period of time. And they start off with the Kennedy years and they kind of drift through the history. And McNamara basically has a set of lessons that he takes us through in the documentary. He has 11 lessons overall. And there's like little segments within the documentary that are specific to each of those lessons. And it doesn't just cover his time with the the U.S. government. It talks about his time with um, an automobile company. I believe it was Ford or Chrysler at the time. And at that point was when they started to come up with 
the rationale as to why people should be wearing seatbelts and why there should be more safety measures within cars. And he he applies his lessons to life, basically, and he's basically dictating them out to to the viewer and how you can utilize some of these lessons and understand them better. Like some of them, uh, lesson one, for example, is empathize with your enemy. So when you think about his legacy, like going into Vietnam and going into Cuban Missile Crisis, like he was with Kennedy at the time when Russia and the US are like at odds and people's like fingers are hovering right over buttons. And he's trying to encourage like level headedness and looking at these messages that are coming in from Russia. It's like, all right, let's think about what our enemy is feeling and, and try to alleviate these things. And it's interesting, his his perspective, and uh, it takes us just through his history. And he's, he's a fascinating individual. But what's really interesting, what always has caught my ear with this documentary was the soundtrack. Because there are a lot of things built into kind of the documentary genre that are more just visual. There may be some narration, there may not be, but the soundtrack for this movie is really, really interesting, done by Philip Glass, who is an amazing composer in his own right. No stranger to this podcast, as we talked extensively about his work with Candyman. And I really like what he does with the soundtrack in this documentary. It feels very militaristic, but does have sort of its moments of, of emotion and glory to it. And I think it does evoke a really interesting emotional impact when you're looking at the stuff that McNamara was doing under what he was doing with Kennedy and and with um, Johnson and, and Nixon. I mean, we're talking about bombings and military actions against other nations. And the things that he talks about really do need to be emotionally driven home with the impact and just what his rationale, what, what he was dealing with, the emotions that he had to deal with and what he's dealing with in the aftermath. And I think the score really does set that place really, really well. I think it's interesting what he, what um, Philip Glass is able to do with that score, and and I do believe it's it is an emotional documentary. It is, I mean, you can kind of see the the heartstrings that they're tugging at. I mean, you have this older gentleman sitting down talking. He gets emotional at times, talking about some real heavy stuff. But I mean, the, the stuff that he's trying to pitch is things like life's lessons, like. Jason, like you said, with kind of looking back at Rocket, it's the the beauty of hindsight. Learn from what he has experienced to try and avoid the failures of the past, which classically is like Vietnam. Let's not get into conflict when we're not thinking about our enemy side of things, if we're not kind of maximizing our efficiency, when we're not looking beyond oneself. We need to make sure that we're doing all this so that we avoid useless conflicts from happening again. Of course, not many presidents heeded that advice, but we could still take a look at the documentary and try to apply them and these lessons to our to our own lives. But it's also just a really fascinating story from a guy who was big in, in industry, was big in the government. He did some amazing things with, with his life. So it's a fascinating documentary. And that score from Philip Glass really does sort of drive it home that this is a, a medium that gets message and emotion and feeling across even if it's a really serious maybe not so kind of cinematic of uh, of a topic or subject matter nobody is going to be taking robert mcnamara and 
making him the star of a movie. He he is a character in many movies that are about the U.S. Po- like political scene from that era. Like many character, many people, many actors have played him. I believe he even appeared as a character in the one of the Call of Duty zombie um, yeah yeah uh, D- DLCs. But he's not going to be your leading man. In this documentary, he has the ability to actually put himself out there and provide his story and, and give you his own personal perspective from one of the highest positions in the U.S. government and one that is extremely controversial, one that does have a lot of really horrible history with it, but one from an interesting sort of perspective that he provides. And it's a really great documentary and it's interesting to see philip glass's name attached to it so if you haven't seen it i highly recommend going out and finding the fog of war i like and this one came out in the 2000s right this is 2003 yeah because i feel like it was around that same time that i found dig that i remember seeing that and hearing about it and i wanted to check it out and it just slipped off my radar and i never had a chance so same year yeah, yeah so thank you for bringing it back up and it's funny because i've seen like in searching for Philip Glass, the Fog of War soundtrack comes up, but I've never listened to it because I had no context of like, oh, yeah, I forgot about that movie. So, yeah, I'm definitely excited to check that out. I want to listen. And obviously that time period of American politics is very tense. So I'm yes. sure he definitely has some really valuable lessons to share. That really sounds interesting. I'm actually kind of curious because like sort of looking at what is written about sort of Philip Glass's style in musically what does he do in that documentary like because it sounds like it sounds like his style you know is mainly classical and probably not the most dense in terms of arrangements you know he seems to go towards the simplistic side of things so when you say that the soundtrack or the score for this is pretty amazing like what is it so it sounds like it's really just sort of about like having the right emotion in the music at that point in time like of the story is that like Mm -hmm. what how would you sort of describe what's going on there? It's looking at what the subject matter that they're specifically looking at. So with him, it kind of varies from his time in industry and then his time in the government. And when he is dealing with conflict or talking about the wars that he was involved in, because you can flat out say that he was involved in several wars. I think the way that Philip Glass kind of takes that sort of traditional American military movie theme like you hear the brass you hear the drums like it's just kind of that sort of classical feel to it and it just the way that he plays it he brings in like a lot of strings he brings in a lot of brass it's it and i think it's have you both seen the movie fifth element oh yes maybe once or twice (laughs) (laughs) i uh incompletely a long time ago okay so there's this scene closer to the end where lilu is She's looking at a montage of human history. War. Yes. She just types in war and she just gets this whole slew of of images. And it's basically the same thing that Philip Glass is doing with the music as he's kind of looking at all of these Japanese towns that the U.S. bombed. And it's this kind of montage of percentages and devastation like and it just builds and builds and builds and builds and the way that philip glass is taking the score is the same thing that happens in the fifth element it's this sort of slow creep into holy cow i'm seeing some some heavy shit holy cow i'm really seeing some heavy shit building 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 until finally that last image of like the atomic blast is there and then it kind of just it the music swells and hits and it just And 
I just think the way that he was able to design his composition in those moments and then pair it with the visuals of this this older gentleman crying over his his actions and his country's actions and everything really just worked to evoke an emotional state that I think Errol Morris really wanted to put you in that while yes, atrocities occurred, we have to take it in the perspective of what was happening at the time. And we have to take a hindsight look to it. We have to learn from the mistakes that occurred. And the way that we're going to evoke that is by impacting you emotionally. I think that's what the score was doing. And I think Glass was able to present it that way in a really sound, sensitive dynamic. I see. If that makes any mm. sense. Yeah, no, I think so. Yeah, I totally get what you're saying. But I think that brings us to the end of the official sort of coverage. Do you guys have any other documentaries that you just wanted to kind of throw out to the listeners to get them to to watch or enjoy? Um, yes. So my two recommendations would be um, a documentary that has no dialogue. And it's scenes from around the world placed to music. And it's called Baraka. And I remember it was like one of the first times ever I saw a documentary that had no talking and it was very, it actually tells a story. Like it's very weird in the way in which it kind of connects certain visual montages together. Um, so that one is definitely one I would recommend checking out. The music and the, the visual imagery is absolutely gorgeous. And then for like dishy McDonald's type documentaries, I call Nothing is better than the HBO series McMillions. Have either of you heard of it or seen it? Oh my god, I've watched it three times and I love a good docu-series. I love true crime. This one is just so dishy and convoluted and so gossipy and Jerry Springer-esque that uh, I've. it's really fascinating. It's like eight episodes of the Monopoly controversy that happened within mcdonald's and that no real winner has happened for over 12 years in that um so yeah that's i those are my two recommendations excellent jason gosh so for me i don't you know again i don't have a ton of recommendations here but you know tapping on sort of my academic background i feel like i'd be remiss if i didn't talk about freakonomics because i think that that's one of those documentaries that everybody should sort of see at some point in part for what economics does, but also for what it doesn't do. I, I would recommend it for that. I don't remember the music from that documentary yeah. at all. Um, but I know that that was a, a one that I kind of, you know, enjoyed back in the day. And I'm trying to think if there's anything else that really sort of jumps at me. I would. Summer Soul? Yes, but not because it was necessarily a great documentary per se, but because it's just such a cool illustration of where the country was at that point in time for Black America and sort of, you know, they, yeah, thanks for bringing that up. I mean, sort of like the, the juxtaposition between America sending uh, folks to the moon at that point. And then, you know, just reminding me, although I don't think they ever actually played it in the documentary that whole, uh, now I'm like blanking on dude's name, but basically the one who did Whitey on the Moon. Oh, right. <laughs> uh, um, 
Frick. What? Like, I, I can't believe I'm forgetting Gil, this in the moment. Gil Scott Gil Heron. Scott Heron. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, just thinking about, like, what was relevant to young black folks at that particular time as they're, like, attending this concert and the issues that they were thinking about sort of just coming off not that far removed from the wave of civil rights assassinations between like, you know, the MLK, the Kennedys, like all that stuff that happened. And then sort of this story happening at the exact same moment of like folks landing on the moon and like, you know, broadcasting the sound from the astronauts there. And it's like, it's so otherworldly to a lot of the folks in uh, the documentary at the time. So, and, and that's not to take away from the documentary itself. Yeah, I mean, because I mean, you and I were talking about how like very cool the visuals are and how it's weird that they don't even seem like they were taken from the, you know, the late six, well, 1969 or whatever. It They seem like they're a lot more current, which is, I mean, I guess maybe award worthy in and of itself, but yeah, I mean, it's not necessarily that the story, like the story of the documentary, is like that spectacular. But then it kind of is a really cool retelling of the history of that moment. Yeah, the visuals are amazing for. 50 60 year old footage and i think i love that juxtaposition of what is happening in harlem in 1969 versus spending millions upon millions upon millions of dollars to send people <laughs> send white people to the moon and yeah interesting it's, that that has also been kind of replicated with just bezos and elon musk Yes. And like them flying around in their spaceships in outer space and us having like global poverty and vaccine inequity. And you're like, oh, wow. So this story hasn't changed too much. Yep. It really hasn't. And I mean, yeah, you know, to that point, Anthony, it's like it's weird, too, because all they really did was sort of get to like the nexus of the end of Earth's atmosphere and the beginning of space. And it's like wow, it must be nice to have that kind of money just yeah, to spend seriously. on your own wanderlust to, like, see that. I mean, yay for you, but meanwhile... But also, yeah. fuck you? <laughs> pretty <Yeah>. much. <laughs> you can you know, take or... your penis-shaped rocket and stick it. <laughs> I guess we can uh, take solace in the fact that in 20 years there's going to be a documentary about this time period for us. <laughs> exactly. Right. Yep. So my uh, final recommendations, I've got a couple. So I would recommend uh, 20 Feet from Stardom, which is an amazing documentary about backup singers and just the era of like from the 60s all the way up to now. And just some of the legends who sang backup on not only Motown tracks and and, um, kind of your classic British invasion rock, but just where they fit in all over the place. And some of the voices that that are there are just amazing. Um, I wanted to mention Summer Soul, so I'm glad we got that in. And the final thing I wanted to mention, tying it back to my love of sports documentaries, there's a documentary called June 17th, 1994. And it is basically a look at the 24-hour period of that day from a sports lens because there's a lot of different events that are happening all at the same time. The New York Rangers have just won the Stanley Cup after Marc Messier has guaranteed their win. So they're having their ticker tape parade. Um, Arnold Palmer is playing in his final round at the U.S. Open. And uh, there's a basketball finals going on right now between the Houston Rockets and New York Knicks. Uh, There is some stuff happening in baseball and a little thing is happening in California that involves a white Bronco and a man by the name of Orenthal James Simpson. 
So it's kind of, it's this great sort of look at the sports world and this legendary sports character who is doing some really ridiculous stuff on that day and completely taking the emphasis off anything else aside from him driving around in his uh, white Bronco with his buddy AC. It is a fantastic documentary. It has no talking heads. It's another one of those documentaries that just relies on the footage and the music. And I think it's really fascinating. It is probably one of the best 30 for 30s that is, that is out there. And it, it's it speaks exactly to, I think, all of our age ranges. Like, I remember the OJ trial. I remember seeing this on TV. Past guest of our show, Kathy Kinzora, has done an amazing look at OJ Simpson and the OJ trial on her podcast, History of the 90s. So that documentary just jumps out to me. I highly recommend it. Nice. But I think we will wrap it up there. Thank you to you both for sharing and participating in this fantastic return back to our uh, our podcast. And thank you to the listeners out there. Um, if you want to continue to seek us out wherever you find your podcast, we are on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Amazon Music. Go ahead and give us a follow. If you find us on Apple Podcasts, go ahead and give us uh, a review. Five stars would be fantastic. Also, you can subscribe to our uh, social media accounts. We are on Instagram and Twitter at EvenTheScorePod follow us there join in in our conversations we always seem to have pretty lively debates and there's a fantastic group of uh independent podcasters who are out there that are connected to us and we encourage you to just consume as much podcast as you can at this point because we love the feedback and we love to get the, our uh, our voices out there into as many ear holes as we can but of course i need to thank my co-hosts anthony and jason for joining in this conversation thank you very much to you both Ooh, thank you yeah thank you it, it takes all of us our and village now I feel compelled street. to sing like the the closing to Family Ties. What will we do, baby, without <laughs> us? <laughs> Anyways, sorry. No, d- never be sorry for that. Well, I'm sorry for my singing, and I'm sorry that I subjected you all to it. Not at all. But thank you very much to you too. This has been a, another fantastic episode of the Even the Score podcast. Thank you very much for listening. Sha la la la. Anyway, scratch is good.